Sometimes when driving through a small town, you might come up to the courthouse in the town square, and you'll see at the corner of that building usually a large stone. It'll say established or built or something along those lines, and then a date. And that stone is the cornerstone of that particular building. It's part of the foundation. It's uh, significant largely today, uh, symbolically, but also structurally in supporting the, found, the, the building itself. But what if I told you that someone came up and said, you know what, I reject that cornerstone from that building. Would that make sense to us if we heard someone say that kind of phrase? Maybe not. But we see that kind of language, the idea of the cornerstone, and the rejection of that cornerstone in a number of places. The first place that we see it is in Psalm 118, verse 22 which says the stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. And as we discussed uh, on Wednesday night with Psalm 2, psalms that have an allusion to the king often have reference first and foremost to the Israelite king, uh, but as we'll see in a moment, many of these phrases are also applied in a prophetic sense to Jesus himself, who is the great and final king. We see this phrase from this psalm, Psalm 118, applied to Jesus in uh, Luke 20, verse 17, when Jesus rebukes the Pharisees. He gives the parable of the vine growers who rejected the son of the owner of the vineyard and put him to death. He tells this parable. He says, what should happen to them? They say he sh they should rightly be punished. And Jesus says, what then this that is written, the stone which the builders rejected, this became the chief cornerstone. But this phrase isn't only used in the Gospels. It's not only used in Luke, but also in Matthew and Mark. It's used beyond the Gospels as well. We see it in Acts 4 and verse 11 in Peter's sermon. He is the stone who was rejected by you, the builders, but which became the chief cornerstone. Peter then uses it again in his epistle. 1 Peter 2, verses 4 through 8. And coming to him as to a living stone, which has been rejected by men, but is choice and precious in the sight of God, you also as living stones are being built up as a spiritual house for a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For this is contained in Scripture. Behold, I lay in Zion a choice stone, a precious cornerstone, and he who believes in him will not be disappointed. This precious stone value, then, is for you who believe. But for those who disbelieve, the stone which the builders rejected, this became the very cornerstone, and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. For they stumble because they are disobedient to the word, and to this doom they were also appointed. And finally, we see the same concept, but a slightly different Greek word used to express the same idea of the cornerstone. And Paul uses this in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 19 through 22. He says, regarding the relationship between Christ and the church, So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and are of God's household, having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole building being fitted together is growing into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you also are being built together into a dwelling of God in the Spirit. And so related to this idea of Jesus being the cornerstone, 
what are we to conclude, what do these various passages together teach us about this concept? I think the first thing that we see is that Christ is the foundation of the church. We see this in first, or second Peter 1 and ver, or first Peter 2 and verse 4, and so you're welcome to turn there if you want, but uh, if not, uh, just listen as I read it for you again. And it says here that Jesus is precious in God's sight. It says, Coming to Him as to a living stone, which has been rejected by men, but is choice and precious in the sight of God. So Christ is the foundation of the church, first and foremost because He's precious in God's sight, because God has appointed Him to be that. Even though people rejected Him, many different people rejected Him. The Pharisees rejected Him. The Israelites generally rejected Him. They, they, they proclaimed His entry, coming into Jerusalem. And then just a short while later, they were standing there with the Pharisees, ready to crucify Him. People who have heard the Gospel message reject Christ. Even people today reject Christ. But... Whose assessment is most important of Christ's value? Certainly God's is most important. And God has said that He is choice and precious. His Son is choice and precious in His sight. And we come to Jesus recognizing that He is the foundation of the church, being precious in God's sight, being appointed to be that foundation. God's exalting of Christ overrules man's rejection. The Pharisees rejected him. They constantly schemed how to overthrow him until they finally succeeded in crucifying him. And yet, what do we read in Ephesians? That God has highly exalted him. That he is in God's presence, worthy of praise and honor. And so God's assessment of Christ is that he is part of the foundation, that he is precious in God's sight. But secondly, that he is the most important part of the foundation. And we see this in Ephesians chapter 2. Again, you're welcome to turn there, but I will read it for you. Ephesians chapter 2, where it says in verse 20 that the church is built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. And so again, going back to that imagery of the building, what do you have the idea that Paul's laying out? Here's a building. You have the entirety of the foundation, but central to that foundation, is that cornerstone. You take the cornerstone out of the building, that part of the building is going to collapse. You take the cornerstone away, that place of honor no longer has that same place of honor. Just like you, you drive up and you see the courthouse and you see the, the date of establishment and the importance of that to the particular city in which that building is seen, so Christ is to the church the cornerstone, the foundation of the church. Now, what all else makes up that foundation? It says it's also founded in verse 20 on the apostles and the prophets. And so Christ comes, he establishes his church, uh, but he does so through the work of the apostles and the prophets. For example, you read in Matthew 18, what does he say to Peter? You're the rock, and upon this rock I will build my church. And a lot of people look at that and they say, well, is it Peter? Is it the message that Peter brings? I think specifically, Christ built his church by means of the apostles and prophets in the early church as they proclaimed the gospel message. 
They say, well, but, but Christ is the, is the cornerstone. And the relationship between Christ and the gospel is an interesting one in that Christ is the Word of God. And to speak the gospel is to speak about Him. And so, to some extent, it's hard to draw a distinct line between Christ and the message about Christ. Certainly they are not identical, but they are very closely related. And so, Christ and the apostles, and the message about Christ, which they proclaimed, Christ saying, be a part of my kingdom, the apostles saying, repent and believe in Jesus, these things were the foundation of the church. And this connects with what we looked at this morning, and why Paul was so concerned that they stand firm in the truth, because the truth wasn't just something that people had made up, it wasn't just general facts about life, it was the truth about Christ that was central to their faith. This foundation, Christ, the apostles and prophets, proclaiming the message about Christ, supports all of God's people. It says in Ephesians uh, 2, 21-22, it says, "...in whom the whole building being fitted together is growing into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you also are being built together into a dwelling of God in the Spirit." And so the picture that Paul paints for us is this. Here's the foundation. Christ as the cornerstone, the apostles and the work that they did as also part of the foundation. You are like the blocks in the wall that are being built up to form the entirety of the structure of not a courthouse, not a government building, but of a temple to God. And the fascinating thing about this imagery is this. Christ dwells within each of us individually, and Christ dwells among all of us corporately as we are gathered in the church and, in fact, in the entirety of the church that God is building across the world. And so this idea of Christ being the cornerstone is foundational to our understanding of the importance of the church. Apart from Christ, we would have no church. Apart from the ministry of those that He called to proclaim the gospel, to begin, to found the church, we would have no church. But also, apart from us individually being a part of this building that God is putting together, we have no church. And so Christ is the foundation of the church, precious in God's sight, rejected by men, but appointed by God to be foundational to this thing that God is doing in the world called the church. We too get to share in that, Christ being the most important part of it, Christ being the essential part of it, and yes, us as well, also being a necessary part of it, being built together as a temple to the Lord into a dwelling of God in the Spirit. And so if Christ is the foundation of the church, if that, that is God's purpose, if that's what God is accomplishing, then what does that mean for us? Rejecting Christ as that foundation brings destruction. We see this in Matthew chapter 21. Feel free to turn there if you like. But in Matthew 21, Jesus is speaking to the Pharisees. It's a parallel passage to the one in Luke that I alluded to. And there's the parable of the, vi- of the vineyard owner. And then you have the response of the Pharisees to that. Those people who rejected their master deserve punishment. And Jesus brings it home to them at the end of Matthew 21. And He says, Did you never read in the Scriptures 
the stone which the builders rejected, this became the chief cornerstone. This came about from the Lord, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Therefore I say to you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing the fruit of it. Now the concept of the kingdom of God is not something that we have time to delve into tonight. But essentially, here comes Jesus saying, be a part of my kingdom. The Pharisees, the Jews as a people, reject that offer. And what does Jesus say? I am going to gather in those who will accept the gospel. I'm going to gather in those who will be a part of the work that I am doing in the world. It will be taken away from you and given to a people producing the fruit of it. Does that mean that there is no future for Israel? Paul would say no. In Romans 11 and following, he says that the Gentiles are grafted into the work that God is doing to provoke the Jews to jealousy so that when the time is right, God will yet save His people Israel. And yet in the meantime, rejecting Christ as the cornerstone, as the foundation of the work that God is doing, brought judgment to the Pharisees. And God said, I am going to use others instead of those who reject. And lest we think that that was too harsh of a punishment for Christ to announce to the Pharisees, what had been the consistent response of the people of Israel, generally speaking, to those that God had sent? There's the prophets. They rejected their word. Here's Christ in the parable, the son of the vineyard owner. The more important than just the other servants, what do they do to him? Prophetically speaking, they were going to crucify him because they rejected what he has done. And so not only does it say in verse 43, is he going to take away this blessing from those who had rejected it and give it to others who would share in it, he says in verse 44 that those who reject will be punished themselves. Look at verse 44. He who falls on this stone, Matthew 21, 44, will be broken to pieces, but on whomever it falls, it will scatter him like dust. So not only do they have the punishment of being set aside, so to speak, in terms of the work that God was doing in and through the world because they had rejected Christ, not only do they have that punishment, but there is also this, this, this threat, this warning of destruction. And there's two different ways that the image is used. He who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces. I don't know if you've ever been really high up looking down over a cliff. For most of us, that's an unnerving feeling. And why? Because if you fall off that cliff and you fall on the rocks below, what will happen? Your body will be broken on those rocks. The other image is on whomever it falls, it will scatter him like dust. And this would be the idea not of you falling on the rocks, but of the rocks falling on you. The idea of perhaps an avalanche, someone getting caught in it and being crushed by the stones falling off the side of a mountain. What do both of these pictures illustrate? God's judgment comes on those who reject Christ as the cornerstone. And the irony of this is that this exaltation of Christ will bring adoration from God's people. But those who have rejected Christ as the cornerstone will either be too deceived, as we looked at in 2 Thessalonians 2, or 
or too rebellious to acknowledge Christ and see His glory. Christ is the foundation of the church. He is central to the work that God is doing in the world today. Those who reject Christ as that exalted central position of what God is doing will face God's judgment. But the encouragement, the good news that we see from these passages collectively is that accepting Christ as the foundation, recognizing Him for who He is and what part He has in God's plan brings blessing. We see this back in 1 Peter 2, verses 4 through 8. As we believe on Christ as the foundation, we will have various blessings. It says in verse 6, He who believes in Him will not be disappointed. Think about that. How many times are we disappointed in life? Probably on a daily basis, if you, if you look at various small disappointments. We really want something to happen at a particular time. We really want to get somewhere at a particular time. We would like to see a particular thing happen financially. We want to see something happen in a relationship with someone. And in all of these things, there are small disappointments that occur constantly throughout our lives. And those are significant, and those are real. And yet, to come to the end of our life and to say that this thing that I have hoped and trusted in is foolish, is empty, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, that would be the greatest disappointment, the worst regret, because at that point you would say, I could have lived my life and enjoyed all these things that I set aside to follow Christ, and now I find out that that's fake, and I wasted my life. We of all men are most to be pitied, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15. But the resurrection is true. And as this verse says, he who believes in him will not be disappointed. So if we believe in Christ, we will not be disappointed. It will have been worth it to set aside all of these other sorts of things. Not only because we avoid God's judgment on those who reject Christ, but also because we have blessings in association with being connected to Christ. He says in verse 7, this precious value then is for you who believe. If we believe in Christ, God enables us to see the value of Christ. And I'm sure we've all encountered, had this conversation with people who don't know Christ, and they say, why do you go to church? Why would, why would you take time on Sundays and Wednesdays and, and throw away money after church? What good is that? And what is the answer? It's for the value that God has enabled us to see as we have a relationship with Christ that He is worth it, that following Him does bring blessings, and that those blessings are far more important than the temporal advantages that we would gain by having an extra five, six, however many hours a week not going to church, and whatever percentage of our money we give to the church by having that back to do whatever we want with, those things, if we could get those and lose Christ, would that be a worthwhile trade? I mean, that's what Jesus said. What does it profit a man 
to gain the whole world or even a small piece of it, but to lose his soul. And unless we belong to Christ, we will not understand the precious value of Christ, the cornerstone, the foundation of our faith. Furthermore, we find our true purpose in serving Him. Also in 1 Peter 2 and verse 5, he says, You as living stones are being built up as a spiritual house for a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Paul was an amazing writer. And yet sometimes you look at the the pictures that he uses and you say, this is puzzling to me. Because what does he say? In this case, Peter, I should say. But Paul uses a similar idea. But Peter says, you're like the rocks in the building, the, the, the blocks in the wall of the foundation. But you're also like the priest serving in the temple. At one and the same time, you are part of the building and those who serve in the building and part of this thing that God is building up in the world and connecting that back with the example of what what Paul said in Ephesians that you as a spiritual house are being built up that God dwells in you individually and among you corporately and we, we look at these pictures and we say what's the significance of them? And I think both Peter and Paul would say to us about Christ as the cornerstone this, that He is supposed to be the sum total of the focus of our lives. He's supposed to be the one that we are living for, the one that we are serving, so that we are both part of the structure of what God is doing in the world and those who are serving in among it and those in whom Christ is dwelling and those among whom the Spirit is working. We take all of these ideas and we put them together and we see that God wants us to be serving in, through Christ, we find our purpose in serving Him. Blessing comes as we believe on Christ. Those who reject Him will face punishment. Those who reject Him will face difficulty. We who believe in Him have the opportunity to share in God's exaltation of Him. We have the opportunity to see the value that God has assigned to Christ, even though the world around us doesn't see it. We have the opportunity to find purpose and meaning and significance for our life in serving Christ. Blessing comes as we believe on Christ as the foundation. Blessing also comes as we participate in God's work in the church. And we see this as well back in Ephesians chapter 2. And the larger context of Ephesians 2 is that God is working in the church to unite groups that were enemies. In Ephesians, what were the groups that were enemies? Jews and Gentiles. They were enemies. And not just were they enemies, but here were the Jews connected with God, having the promises, having all of these privileges of being associated with God as His people. And here are the Gentiles sort of standing outside the gates, so to speak. They couldn't share in these things. And that created a wall between them and the Jews. It created uh, a sense of disdain from the Jews looking at the Gentiles. 
And yet, in the church, because both groups are connected to Christ, the division between them has been broken down. It doesn't mean that their ethnicity was lost. It doesn't mean that these categories have no significance. Paul says in Colossians in the church, there is neither Jew nor Greek, uh, barbarian or Scythian, slave or free, male or female. It doesn't mean that those words have no meaning. It means that when we are gathered in the church, those ideas are not what defines our relationship to one another in God's sight. God looks at us and He doesn't say, you're better because you're a man, you're better because you're a woman, you're better because you're rich, you're better because you're poor, you're better because this is your ethnic background, that's your ethnic background. We are in Christ, fellow citizens with the saints of God's household. And we see that in the church, we have a blessing of participating in God's work in the world. God is uniting groups that were enemies. God is creating a new and amazing thing in the church among whom He Himself will dwell. And why is He doing it? Why is God building the church in this way? Why, why these images of the, the temple being built and the stones and the priests and all of these... What's the significance of all of this? The point of this is that as people look at what God is doing in the world, here's one that people rejected, but God exalted. Here's those that the world doesn't understand, but God is at work among them. As people see those things, as they catch glimpses of God's plan through Christ and through His people, God receives glory. Psalm 118.23, This is the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. And so you look down the, 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 the scope of history and you see this written in the Psalms and you see this concept carried forward. God intending to appoint His Son as the prime focus of all people and the work that He is doing in the world. And He comes to His very own people and His own people say, we don't want that. They reject it. And God accomplishes it anyway. And then you come to individual believers. And as Paul says in another place, God has not chosen many mighty, many wise, many powerful according to this world. These are people, we are people, that the world looks at us and says, why them? And yet God exalts Himself in what He is doing in the world through what He is doing in us built on the foundation of Christ and the apostles with Christ being the primary focus of the church, the, the foundation of the church. And all of these things together bring glory to God. And so as we look at this concept of Christ as the cornerstone in Psalms, in the Gospels, in Peter's epistle, Paul also borrowing those same ideas, what response should we have to Christ as the cornerstone? We have to recognize that He is the one through whom God has founded the church and is accomplishing work in the church. It's very clear from these passages that that's what God is doing. And so if we say Christ is not the most important thing in the church, what I want for the church is the most important thing, then 
we're not believing what God has said that Christ is central to the church. If I say this is my church instead this this is Christ's church, I've missed the point too. And we can say it's our church, as in this is our, our, our body of believers that we gather with, that we assemble with. But it doesn't belong to us, ultimately. It belongs to God. We belong to God. So we recognize that the church is for Christ. That the church is under Christ. That God is working through us for Christ. Christ is the foundation of the church. What else should be our response? We cannot reject Christ. We look at the Pharisees and we say they were foolish to reject Christ. But it is possible for us to, in similar ways, not recognize the significance of Christ, think that we can get through life apart from Christ, fail to see the value of Christ, and in so doing, fall under God's judgment because we are not giving Christ as the cornerstone the significance, the importance, the place that He deserves. Jesus says, if you love me, keep my commandments. So how do we know if we're giving Christ the place that He deserves? When we obey what He's asked us to do. How do we know when we're not doing that? Perhaps not to the degree that the Pharisees did, and certainly not in the same position that they did. They were lost. I trust all of us are believers in Christ tonight. But if we reject Christ in great ways or small ways, God will not take that lightly. Again, go back to that imagery. Christ is a cornerstone. We read Psalm 62 together. Psalm 62 speaks of God as a refuge. God is a rock. God is a refuge. And Christ is God. As the cornerstone, is He going to be the foundation of your life and all that you do? Or is He going to be like the cliff that someone falls off of, like the avalanche someone is buried in, bringing destruction because you've rejected His Word? Recognize who He is. Don't reject Him. Rather, follow Him, believe in Him, so that you might be blessed and share in God's glorious plan. That which the builders rejected, God has exalted. This is God's work. We recognize I didn't accomplish it. And it is marvelous in our eyes. So do we see the amazing thing that God is doing in the church, that He founded it on Christ, that He's building it up using us, that we get to share in God's work in the world, do we see the significance of those things? Or do we just say, I don't know what Paul's saying, I don't know what Peter's saying, and just sort of walk by it. Christ is the cornerstone. Are you trusting in Him tonight? Do you recognize how important He is to God and how important He should be to each of us? Christ is the cornerstone. What are we going to do with Him? Let's pray.
Lord, it's easy for us to read different phrases about who you are and about what you've done and just sort of pass by them because they are too familiar or they're confusing or just a variety of reasons. We get too busy. Lord, help us to recognize the significance of who Christ is, that you are building the church with him as the foundation. Lord, help us to recognize the importance of our response to Christ, that rejecting him brings terrible suffering, that believing in him and following him brings inexpressible joy. Lord, help us to take these truths not only for ourselves, but also to the people that we know. Lord, we don't have to be apologetic for who you are and what you've done. What you are doing is great and wonderful and amazing. And those around us may not see it, they may not understand it, but they too can be intrigued by it and marvel at it, and you will be glorified even in that way. But Lord, we pray that they too will come to share and be a part of what it is that you have allowed us to be a part of. Lord, we don't deserve to be a part of the work that you're doing in the world. We are amazed at the fact that you would use us with our limitations and our weaknesses and our sins to be the ones through whom you are, are working here and now. And yet, because you have called us to do that, Lord, give us the strength, give us the uh, sense of urgency, give us the desire to do it well. Lord, we, we consider the fact that we are a part of the church that you are building in the, in the world, that you, we are those who are serving uh, in obedience to you. Lord, we pray that you would be glorified as we do that well. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.